Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the online ministry of Grace. And while I am very excited to be speaking to you all digitally this morning, I have to admit that I am very much looking forward to being able to actually be able to preach live this morning at our open air services for the first time after many close calls. If you, if we haven't met, my name is Caleb Jones, and I am the church administrator and ministry intern here at Grace. Now, growing up in the church, it is pretty easy to fall into the stereotype of the good little church kid that always gets the right answers and smiles at the right times. Even kids can very quickly learn to adapt to their surroundings and learn to say the right things to get the desired reaction. For me personally, adding being the pastor's kid on top of that just made it all the more real. I very distinctly remember a passing comment that someone made to me at one point, which I think about often. Upon telling them that I was a pastor's kid, they informed me right there in that moment, as still a young child, that my life could go one of two ways. I would either allow my faith to lead me into a life of ministry, probably as a pastor, or be the complete rebel and end up falling away completely. And while I wouldn't say this person was a fortune teller or anything, what could seem like a ridiculous joke or a wild assumption, unfortunately, has a little bit of truth to it. I'm obviously not saying that these are the only two potential futures for kids who grew up in the church. But the sad reality is that so many who do end up in that second camp of abandoning any sign of faith completely. The very kids who get all the right answers in Sunday school startlingly often are never seen in a church again after leaving their parents' home. And while this reality can lend itself to a lot of fascinating and complex discussions about the role of the church and the discipleship of youth and so many other important things, I share this story to bring up one simple truth. Getting all the right answers and even knowing how to do all the right things isn't what indicates salvation and doesn't necessarily correlate to a life of following the Lord. And this is not just true for those who fall away in their youth, but for anyone who falls away from the Lord at any time in their life. As we've been working our way through the life of Solomon, I tend to think of him in a similar way to the church kid who loses their way. Yes, most of the time, said church kid doesn't become a king or is known as the picture of human wisdom, but the comparison still remains. And in both such incidents, we have a tendency to want to figure out why and to look for signs which would explain their demise. Surely things can't just go from looking exactly right to falling to pieces. Surely there must have been clues that were missed. Like any good literary analysis, we want to find the foreshadowing of the danger which would be to come. But in the passage that we are looking at today, in the life of Solomon, those signs aren't to be found. When I spoke last a couple months ago, when we were earlier in Solomon's life, it made sense to feel hopefulness that the prognosis for Solomon looked a little more positive. But now we are getting close to the end, and since we know that ending of the story, we expect to see the demise and the destruction, not Solomon's continued faithfulness. This passage almost feels like it's a little bit out of place. What are we to make of what looks to be a really good decisions that Solomon is making even later in his life? It would almost be more comforting and digestible if it were 
all bad at this point. That would mean that we could spot the signs and understand what not to do. But it's not that neat in Solomon's life. And the truth is, these stories are rarely as neat and simple as we would desire. Let's read our passage now. I will be looking at chapter 8, verse 54, until uh, chapter 9, verse 9, in the message this morning. Right now, I'm going to read verses 54 to 61 in chapter 8, and then skip to verses 4 to 9 in chapter 9. All right, starting in, in verse 54. Now, as Solomon finished offering all his prayer and plea to the Lord, he arose from before the altar of the Lord, where he had knelt with hands outstretched towards heaven. And he stood and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice, saying, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people, Israel, according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise, which he spoke by Moses, his servant. The Lord our God be with us, as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us that he may incline our hearts to him to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his rules, which he commanded our fathers. Let those words of mine with which I have pleaded before the Lord be near to the Lord our God day and night. And may he maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel as each day requires, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God, there is no other. Let your heart, therefore, be wholly true to the Lord our God, walking in his statutes and keeping his commandments as at this day. And then let's skip ahead to chapter 9, verse 4. And as for you, if you walk, will walk before me as David your father walked, with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal, rule, royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, saying, You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them, and the house that I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight, and Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss, and they will say, Why has the Lord done thus to the land and to this house? Then they will say, Because they abandoned the Lord their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this disaster on them. This is the word of God. The section that we are looking at today, starting in verse uh, 54, comes at the end of a very long prayer, full of Solomon praising and worshiping the Lord, declaring God's goodness, and dedicating himself to the Lord. The part we have here is merely the benediction. Solomon lacked no ability to praise God and to say all the right things. As far as prayers go, this one checks a lot of the right boxes. What's interesting to note right off the top, though, is that this is not merely a prayer between Solomon and God, a quiet contemplative prayer in his heart or spoken softly as he knelt beside 
his bed before going to sleep. This is the king before the altar of the Lord, with his arms stretched to heaven, speaking in a loud, commanding voice for all the assembly of Israel to hear. This isn't to say that a loud public prayer can't also be personal and, and meaningful, but Solomon's words were very rarely not intended for a mass audience to hear them. But there really is so much to admire and to appreciate in how Solomon prays here. Not only is he praising God and acknowledging his faithfulness, but the underlying inspiration seems to be even more about right, uh, but wanting to see God glorified in the world so that all the peoples of the earth may know the Lord as their God. Solomon knew what was right, and it's hard to read this passage and not believe that he believed what he was saying wholeheartedly. His desire to praise God and his recognition of God's faithfulness seem as genuine as possible. And before we go much further, I think it's important to mention what I see as, as the elephant in the room. Was Solomon truly saved? Did he repent of his sins? Will we see him in heaven? When we look at this at his life and we see that he was a man of tremendous wisdom who made many great decisions and in passages such as this one did and said great things for God's glory, we want to believe that he must be. But then when we see the deep sin which befell him as he gave into lust and temptation and let idolatry take over his life, and this is where it ends, it gets really foggy. Unfortunately, I don't have a definitive answer for you. There are varying different beliefs about this subject. We do see that it was said that he loved God and that God blessed him with wisdom, as we've, as we've looked at before, which are positive signs. Some believe that he is the author of Ecclesiastes, and his writing of this book at the end of his life demonstrates his repentance. But ultimately, we don't know if he wrote this book. And since we can't see directly into his heart and into the mind of God, the ultimate fate of Solomon is something I don't believe we can say definitively. But one thing we can say definitively is that he knew how to pray. He knew how to praise God, how to plead to him, how to say all the right things to lead the people in worshiping God. Looking at this, at this picture really reminds me of far too many people I know who also all knew the right things to say, but have fallen away from the Lord. I think about a missionary kid a few years older than me who I always looked up to. He grew up on the mission field in Africa, spent his whole life in ministry, and was passionate to follow that path for his own life too. He came back to Canada and he went to seminary. He seemed like the perfect example of someone following God with his life until he wasn't anymore. Seemingly out of nowhere, from, from my view, he walked away. He got disillusioned. And as far as I know, God is not a part of his life in any way, shape or form now. The unfortunate reality is that I'm confident that while, while I was telling that story, most of you had your own stories of people you know who walked away. Church kids who had all the right answers, teens who were the heart and soul of youth group, seminary students who graduated top of their class. They had the right answers. They knew how to pray and ask God for his provision. They expressed their desire for all, the, all their friends and all the world to know and love God. But it isn't about having the right answers. 
even being able to pray beautifully and eloquently, not even about declaring our desire to see God glorified. It's about trusting the Lord with all your heart and walking in his ways. For Solomon, the many, like many others after him, he knew everything right to say, but that is not what indicates the genuine desire of your heart. It's about trusting the Lord with all your heart and walking in his ways. Now, it's one thing to understand and admit that having all the right answers doesn't equate to actually loving the Lord and a genuine relationship with him. As much as we want to believe people's words, we know that words can be deceitful. But when words are backed up by actions, we tend to get pretty convinced. In this passage, we see Solomon end his prayer and immediately back up his words with actions before the Lord. In verse 62, we see that Solomon goes and offers sacrifices before the Lord. But he doesn't just do this on his own. He leads the entire nation of Israel to follow him in this action. His acts of faithfulness before the Lord didn't just reflect well upon him, but they stirred up countless people in their love and devotion to the Lord. This passage really goes out of its way to show that they didn't just sacrifice the usual or expected amount, but that they went above and beyond in what they dedicated to the Lord. So much so that we see that the bronze altar was too small to receive all the offerings. So Solomon had to consecrate the middle of the court for the sacrifices to be offered there as it was the only place with room. We see here that Solomon took on a priestly role even, similar to what David had done when bringing the ark to Jerusalem. Maybe the picture of a court filled with sacrifice isn't as visually impressive or visceral as it would have been uh, to the original audience of this text, but I compare it in my head to the picture of a church so filled with people that it's standing room only, you have to open the window so people can hear outside and maybe project it um, over a loudspeaker so people can listen in the parking lot. Solomon's leadership had caused the people to come before the Lord in worship in dramatic quantities. This chapter ends on such a positive note. After the immense amount of sacrifice, worship, and dedication, they had a huge feast. And if there's one thing that makes me wish I lived in Bible times, it's probably the idea of having week-long feasts. <laughs> Obviously, we know that these weren't just for eating, as much as that sounds great, but would surely have been significant times of fellowship and merriment. All Israel had been uh, represented by the assembly, as we see illustrated in describing the northern and the southern limits of Solomon's realm. Then, when the time came for the people to go home, they blessed the king, and they went home joyful and with gladness for how God had provided. Wouldn't it be nice if that's how we could describe the way people leave church every Sunday? In the closing details of this chapter, we see that Solomon's actions at this time lined up with his words, praising God and declaring his faithfulness, so much so that he was leading the nation as a people who trusted in, followed, and worshipped the Lord with their heart and soul. Solomon had a tremendous way of leading the people in the things of the Lord, yet we still know how things end for him. We still know his fall is coming. Sadly, this reminds me of one of the most tragic stories in the evangelical Christian world in the past couple of years. Throughout his life, Ravi Zacharias was one of the most influential and respected of Christian leaders. 
who was an example and a role model for thousands, if not millions of believers around the globe. His impacts were global and he led countless people to the Lord and did so much good for the global church. But despite a career of more than 40 years, despite authoring more than 30 books, despite founding a hugely successful organization, if you go to, the Wikip to his Wikipedia page, far more of it is about the personal and academic controversies and allegations and proof of misconduct which have tarnished his name and image in the year and a half since his passing. All the good he did and impacts he had are now an afterthought. Whether we like it or not, these things will be his legacy, if not even as much within the church, certainly in the mainstream news and the history books. Pastors will likely not quote anything he said in their sermons. His books will not remain on the required reading list for Bible college students. Christian leaders will be very hesitant to recommend any of his works. It's certainly not my place to litigate the accusations against him or decide as the extent of his guilt and wrongdoings, but no matter what happens, the damage is done. It's not about saying all the right things and having all the right answers, and it is just as much also not about doing everything that looks right, leading people and inspiring great multitudes to trust in the Lord. It is about trusting in the Lord with all your heart and walking in his ways. Solomon was a great inspiration and the wisest leader in history. Ravi Zacharias was a great inspiration and a titan of modern evangelicalism. But neither will ultimately be remembered just for that. People who fall can be great leaders in the faith too. Chapter 9 begins with its second appearance of the Lord to Solomon. The last time I preached for you, we saw the first appearance, when Solomon asked for and received wisdom and great riches. The second appearance is a little different, however. The second appearance of God marks the end point, in a sense, of Solomon's upward mobility and points us ahead to disaster. God is not coming to ask Solomon what he wants, but rather to give somewhat of a warning. Before that warning, though, we see the reality of the relationship between God and Solomon involved Solomon experiencing answered prayer before the Lord. The Lord heard Solomon's prayers and put his name on the house that he had built. God promised in verse 3 that his eyes and his heart will be there for all time. It would be tempting for Solomon to come away from this interaction and that be the main takeaway, and not the more sobering reality which is upcoming. He could have just thought, wow, great, the Lord heard my prayer, and focus on the reality, uh, that reality as a stamp of approval from God for all he was doing. This reminds me of people who use one significant spiritual moment as the sole thing which they think they're right standing before, which they hinge their right standing before God on. No, I, I'm not meaning that we shouldn't remember and put value in our personal moment of salvation. But when we solely look to one time you felt answered prayer, or a time you led someone else to the Lord, or some something miraculous you experienced as the proof of yours or someone else's salvation, this is a risky stake to claim. It's very easy to go from holding this up as a great memory and a personal testimony of God's work to the point where this replaces actually putting your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior in your mind. 
just as much as it is not about saying all the right things or about inspiring people in faith, it's, it is not about great stories or personal spiritual experiences, but it is about trusting in the Lord with all your heart and walking in his ways. For Solomon, it wasn't enough to have great example that came before him, which he remembered and upheld. Knowing David's faithfulness could undoubtedly serve as inspiration for him and a great example to follow. But that also was not something that would be enough for him. Because it's not about having godly examples and stirring and striving to emulate them. It's about trusting in the Lord with all your heart and walking in his ways. People who fall can often be the people who had the most powerful personal testimonies, who have experienced tremendous miracles in their lives, and who have great examples to follow. Verse 6 starts with the word, but. And this one little word is of great significance. God didn't just appear before Solomon to answer his prayers, as I've already alluded to. The Lord comes to say that if Solomon continues to walk before him with integrity and doing what he has commanded, then he will establish his throne over Israel forever. The future of the temple and the dynasty is made dependent upon obedience, that of Solomon and of future generations. In this warning, God not only lays out what the risks are before Solomon and what the repercussions would be, but also indicates what would bring his downfall. There's a particular focus here on idolatry. The people must not go off to serve other gods and worship them. If they do, the magnificent temple will become ruin and Israel will be cut off from the land, transformed from a nation renowned for its wisdom to a nation that is a byword and an object of ridicule. If there was any place for foreshadowing in this passage, this is where we find it. But it's hard to categorize a direct warning from the Lord as, as foreshadowing because the reality of the if we see here is that God already knew that it was actually when. God knew the temptation that would befall Solomon and the destruction that would ultimately, that that would ultimately cause. Because the crux of the matter is, believers who fall also don't get a free pass. They can have all the right answers, do all the right things, lead people in their faith and have powerful stories. But if they are not trusting in the Lord with all their heart, and walking in his ways, then they don't get a free pass. All those other things, no matter how meaningful they were, don't add up to genuine salvation, no matter how hard anyone tries. Now, the point of this message isn't to be the most depressing sermon ever. While the truth that we see in the life of Solomon is uncomfortable and hard to digest, we can find hope. And where can we find hope in the message that what can look really good and end up like it was all for nothing. We find the hope where we can always find the hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the reality that we don't need to worry about if our life will end up like Solomon if we know Christ as our personal Lord and Savior and cling to him and commit ourselves to walking in his ways and not getting distracted. If we are aware of our own shortcomings and temptations and do all that we can to run from them rather than inviting them in like Solomon did throughout his life. If we don't get to a place of such pride that we think we are invincible 
or don't need correction. You see, as wise as Solomon was, he was too blinded by his own pride and selfishness to, to not see God's warning if it smacked him in the face. He was driving down the freeway, so to speak, and there was a big screaming billboard saying, don't fall to idolatry, but he was looking the other way. God wanted to warn him and steer him the right way, but he wasn't paying attention. This passage isn't giving us the message that we can lose our salvation. That would be the farthest thing from my intent to tell you this morning. But this is a warning. This passage and the life of Solomon overall warns us that even the greatest rulers and the people who seem to get everything right can watch it all come crashing down if they aren't putting their trust in the right place. When we have the assurance that we know Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, we have repented of our sins and turned to him with our lives, we don't need to go around worrying if we'll end up like Solomon. We can have the assurance in what the Lord has promised us. In Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9, we see the great truth. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Nothing we can do can earn our salvation, not even being a great ruler or a powerful leader. The flip side of this truth is just as needed here, though. Our actions do tend to reveal our heart. In the life of Solomon, this didn't come out for a long time. He was able to look like he had everything going right, but eventually the sin which he let come in overtook him. So ultimately, my prayer today is that we can all take this passage as both a warning and a reassurance, a warning that even the mighty can fall and that it doesn't matter if you know the right things to say, if you inspire others and have a great testimony. Those things don't grant anyone a free pass. But the reassurance comes in that we know that the Lord, we know what the Lord wants for us, and we know how to have assurance of our relationship with him. It's about trusting in the Lord with all our heart and walking in his ways. That's what the, that's what the Lord wanted from Solomon, and that's what he wants from us today. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear God, I thank you so much for this passage, and, and even if when we look at it, it's, it's kind of hard to understand why it's here or, or what its purpose is for us. It's, it's hard to understand the life of Solomon because we see all the great he does and then we see how it ends. But God, I pray that we would all take this as, as a warning for us and a reassurance. A warning to not let ourselves be focused on just saying the right things or doing what we think is, is best but a reassurance that we know that we can have the assurance of our salvation by trusting in you with our whole heart and walking in your ways. I pray that we would remember that uh, we don't have to worry that we're going to end up like Solomon, that we can have that assurance of our salvation. God, I pray that we would take the warnings and the reassurances in this passage, we'd apply it to our lives, that, 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 that everyone listening to this message would would see what it means for them in their personal relationship with you. Maybe things they need to change, things that they need to focus on more, focus on less. God, I pray that we would look to you. We would not look to what people's expectations are, or what we think we should be doing, but we look to you as our source 
of knowledge and wisdom and guidance. Pray that you'll be with us all today and thank you for the truth you have given to us in your name. Amen. If you are joining us for the first time today, please let us know by commenting below. I hope that today's message reminded you of the things that don't really matter, like saying all the right things, and encouraged you to remember what does matter, loving God and following Him with our lives. It can be a difficult truth to see the life of Solomon, but we can have the hope and assurance that we won't, we won't experience the same fall he did. If there's someone in your life who would be encouraged by this message, share it with them. And as always, for more messages of hope, visit gracebc.ca. God bless and have a great week, everyone. Thank you.